Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, Solar Warriors, welcome back to Suncast. Thank you so much for giving us the only non-renewable resource that you possess, and that is your time. We are so grateful that you're here. If it's your first time, I hope you'll listen all the way through. And when you're finished, give us a rating and review, an honest one, especially if you like what you hear in iTunes or wherever it is that you listen to your podcasts. A little thumbs up on Spotify always helps. Matt Harper is a pioneering clean tech entrepreneur and product developer as chief commercial officer of Infinity Energy. He's transforming the evolution of what we call the grid edge, grid storage and value creation to enable the energy transition that we all desire so much. Uh, Matt has been in this industry for a long time and he's looked at product creation from a number of different angles we'll explore that and much more in today's show if you like what you hear then i would encourage you to check out the more than 375 additional founder stories and startup advice that we have over at mysuncast.com don't miss out on twice weekly content just like this from practical tactical episodes on tuesdays to deep dives with, with entrepreneurs like matt on thursdays And I hope that you will stick around and get all of the juicy goodness out of this episode. For now, we're going to get ready and tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. All right, all right. So if you have been following the wild and crazy world of energy storage, battery technology and chemistry, no doubt you've heard of a little company called Avalon Battery. Today, we've got Matt Harper one of the co-founders of Avalon that merged with another company in the UK called Red Tea, formed Invinity. We're going to hear more about how all of that came about, but there's a whole lot of backstory to this energy pioneer. And uh, that's why, of course, he's here on Suncast. Matt, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Nico. Stoked to be here. Man, I'm stoked to have you as well. I get a lot of requests from listeners for more information about energy storage. Where are we on the spectrum of deployment? What kind of chemistry and technology should we be looking out for? And I always invariably say, you know, are you familiar with anything beyond lithium ion? And of course, you and I know that most folks are focused on battery storage technology that uh, powers cars and sounds like lithium ion. And there is so much more chemistry from uh, vanadium that you guys work with to molten salt and, uh, you know, the old standby big uh, pools of water at the top of mountains <laughs> that we call uh, that we call dams. But you didn't uh, start out your career implicitly figuring out how the you know vanadium flow battery was going to revolutionize energy storage. Could you give me a sense of your first exposure to what we might now consider clean energy or clean power and you know how you decided that this is how you're going to focus two plus decades of your career? 
Sure. Yeah. So look, I got uh, incredibly fortunate. My first summer after uh, after my first year of engineering school, uh, I, I stumbled into a, a, an internship with a company called Ballard Power Systems, uh, which was at the time and still is one of the kind of leading lights in the in the hydrogen fuel cell industry. Uh, you know, I spent my summer, you know, pulling a wrench underneath the belly of a, of a fuel cell bus, uh, putting together some of the first fleet prototypes for fuel cell buses. And, uh, you know, and, and really have never looked back. You know, I think, uh, you know, I spent some time at Ballard. This is sort of back in the mid 90s. And then after I graduated from from college, went and spent some more time in the uh, in the hydrogen fueling space, some more time on, on, on hydrogen fuel cell powered devices before uh, before getting into the, the flow battery world in uh, in 2005. I think that if I was if I was to say, you know, there was no single moment when I decided that this is where I wanted to focus. But, you know, I've as as I've thought about it over the years, you know, the thing that I want to do with my career that gets me fired up more than anything else is working with smart people on hard problems that matter. No industry has that kind of people in it to the to the degree that that, that clean tech or, or or sort of new energy does. And uh, you know, I just I've been so fortunate to work with uh, incredible teams, incredible people over the last two and a half decades, and that's that's what keeps me going. Yeah, it's an incredible journey that you've had as well. What makes you a product guy? Like, how, how do you differentiate, especially as a founder and co-founder? that mix of skills that uh, either differentiates whether for me like up sales and marketing you're heavily product focused what about your background sort of led you down that path of being on the product and the product development side of the business I mean, it's well. It started off just by having having those skills, right? I mean, I, I you know my first roles in in clean tech were were on the design and design engineering side, um, and uh, and that's really sort of what formed my initial sort of opinions and thoughts about you know what was needed to make commercial offerings in our in our market work, right? You know, um, it was the you know the classic sort of if you build it they will come kind of thing, right? I was was fortunate back uh, sort of about you know fifteen years ago uh, after I'd been at my first flow battery company for about two years to start to, um, you know, take a look into the commercial side of the business and, and sort of started to understand that, you know, it's not necessarily about, you know, have you built the best mousetrap? It's, you know, have you, have you, uh, you know, done the hard work to make sure that people understand what you're doing, you know, understand the value that you can deliver and that you're phrasing those, uh, those opportunities in, in a way that they care about. You know, it's, it's easy to stand here in, in 2021 and, and say, you know, storage is a big deal, but, you know, we spent a lot of time back in 2008, 2009, you know, walking into boardrooms and saying, you know, big batteries are great and got a lot of blank stares. That ability to sort of, you know, communicate what that, you know, what storage can really do, what those products can really deliver is, uh, is, is, is absolutely critical. You started out in engineering as well and, and then went on to MIT for a master's in engineering. Fundamentally, how have you seen over the last two decades the way that engineering is approached or or maybe what observations have you would you have around how the world of engineering has evolved with regard to product uh, and and application engineering in the clean energy space there's more people out there who think that and who are proving that you know the 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 fundamental uh, technical underpinnings of some of the things that we're doing are absolutely critical to the business models that they intend to deliver I, I'm of the view that, you know, a background in engineering is a phenomenal uh, background for running companies in this space, right? Um, you know, not only because, um, you know, ultimately we're trying to, uh, you know, deliver technical solutions, but, you know, because of the, because of the engineering and, and especially the engineering
engineering design mindset that 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 background teaches you. Um, you know, if I were to if I were to think about, uh, you know, some of the some of the tools that I apply to fix problems and, 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 and resolve challenges in my business. It's, it's, you know, I always go back to the engineering design process, right? How do you make sure that you're staying in the problem space until you have all the options on the table? How do you make sure that you're not rushing through ideation and brainstorming, you know, and, and, and you know, how do you make sure that you're giving the right context for problems to uh, solutions to emerge and then, you know, prototype, 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 right. And, you know, some of my, some of the guys I work in my business are, are tired of me saying, you know, we got to, we got to prototype the process, you know, when they're saying, well, you don't need to prototype uh, inventory management, but I think you do, right? And that and that sort of design oriented approach, I think, is is really valuable. And I look, I look around an in industry, and I I see a lot of other a lot of other people in the space who have been successful with engineering background. You know, you only need to look at guys like Jigger Shah, who you know trained as an engineer and now is you know running things that don't seem like they're fundamentally technical things, but uh, you know having that having that fundamental background, I think, is uh, is really beneficial and has certainly helped me do the things that I've been able to get done. You know, I look at your career. And there were some some brief stops at other in other industries, right? Uh, you worked for uh, Canadian Airlines. You worked for uh, an audio sort of like an audio engineering company, thinking about consumer products. Did your time, albeit brief, outside of the broader energy infrastructure industry, inform how you think about designing products that people will use? Yeah, it did, especially in that in that sort of consumer electronics space where. You know, there's nothing like there's nothing like trying to put your product not in front of, uh, you know, 10 or 15 or 100 people, but in front of, you know, 15, 20 or 100,000 people, you know, to, to understand pretty quickly how, how people's responses inform, you know, how you need to build and deliver your product. So, you know, that was that was definitely, definitely valuable. You know, what did I learn from my eight months in the airlines? Uh, you know, that airplanes are the biggest, coolest machines in the world and that working on them is more paperwork and regulation than I ever wanted to deal with. <laughs> so then in, uh, you know, l- l- the mid part of the aughts, uh, you got introduced to a company called VRB Power. I'd love to hear how that journey with VRB led to kind of where you're at today. And I'll, I'll ask a bunch of questions, I'm sure about what decisions, what key decisions you made along the way. Before we get into that, what did you maybe always intend to do as a career path, but never ended up going down that path? Let me answer the question a little bit differently because because I because I, I got to an inflection point you know midway through my career I, you know I always had this notion going through my undergrad that, I, that of the things I wanted to do I wanted to you know run international teams I wanted to invent stuff you know have patents you know etc cetera, etc cetera, you know deliver meaningful new product to market and I you know I kind of woke up one morning in about 2008 so you know I've been working for about eight years or whatever and I kind of made it right I kind of done those things. One of the super insightful pieces of information that uh, one of my longtime mentors gave to me, you know, decades ago was school is not the thing that you do when you know what you want to do. It's the thing that you do to figure out what path you want to be on. And so, you know, that was that 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 realization that I'd kind of done everything set out to do was 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 what gave me the the, the impetus to, to go back and look at going back to school and doing a master's degree. And really, as part of that, you know, as part of that path uh, or as part of that experience, what I realized was you know, the world of energy, the challenge that was facing us was really bigger than what I had been looking at um, up until that date. 
and really saw the the possibilities that you know as we had more and more renewables, what storage would be able to do for the grid and for um, you know for the, the the decarbonization path in general. And so, you know, having that broader perspective, you know, I I, I realized that I was in the right place and 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 finished school and uh, you know skipped the uh, you know the uh, job offers from um, you, you know uh, large international consultancies and, and went straight back into uh, into the energy space and have not regretted it one bit. So tell me what. VRB power systems was all about and how that product, yeah, and ultimately led to Prudent and Prudent to uh, what we know today as uh, the technology that you guys are deploying. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, so Prudent, Inter- or sorry, VRB Power was the original licensee of the vanadium flow technology into North America. Uh, the technology had been invented in the, uh, in the late 1980s in Australia. It had been developed through the 1990s in, in primarily in Australia and Japan. And in, in, in 2004, 2005, we saw an opportunity to bring the technology into North America to serve the North American electric grid. We very early on realized that that you know the technology had really been developed you know as a you know a very well funded uh, research program, and the one of the outcomes from that is that it was way far off from something that would ever be commercially viable. And so you know what we start what we set to do as VRB Power was to take the fundamentals of, of that technology and 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 really sort of cost reduce and cost optimize some of the some of the core technological components that went into delivering those those flow battery solutions. Yeah, we're reasonably successful in that. We delivered our first couple of products to the field. We started down the path of of trying to uh, trying to standardize some of those components. You know, I mean, like a lot of companies in that space, we were reliant on our investors' uh, funds to keep the company going. And we were looking for another round of financing in 2008. Uh, and you can imagine how that went, um, middle of the financial crisis and whatnot. So, uh, so we, um, you know, we ended up uh, we ended up packaging up the 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 core, the core assets of the, of the technology and selling it off to a company called Prudent Energy that was based in Beijing. Prudent had been formed primarily as a as a as a materials developer. They were developing some of the core materials for flow batteries, and they saw you know buying us up as or and integrating us into their company as a way of you know getting all the way to the customer, right? You know the sort of vertical integration story. You know, I think that, you know, we were, you know, the deal closed on, you know, December, uh, January 24th of 2009. We were on the, we were on the plane over to Beijing the day after, not really knowing what to expect. And, uh, and I think we all thought that we'd kind of be doing a kind of three to six month tech transfer exercise. And, and, and then, uh, you know, the guys in Beijing would be off and running with it. You know, four years later, we were still, we were still running a lot of the core technology development, a lot of the systems engineering um, out of our, out of our base on the side of the water. Well, let's get uh, a little geeky for those who will value such things and many of Mm -hmm. our listeners will. Help me understand the fundamentals of vanadium, why it's a good technology for energy storage, how it works in a battery, uh, what uh, maybe even we would go, we should go into defining what flow battery means compared with other types of technology. The easiest way to describe it is that what a flow battery does is it takes the two fundamental things that a battery does um, which is store energy and generate power. And it separates those two things from one another. So you've got big tanks of a liquid electrolyte where the energy is stored. And then you've got a, a, an electrochemical conversion device, what we call a cell stack, 
which is where the that the energy in that liquid is converted into the power that is useful outside of the battery. Um, the flow comes in because obviously you've got to get one of those things into the other. And, you know, so we've got a, you know, inside a flow battery, you're circulating the electrolyte that lives in those tanks through the cell stack to continuously feed that charge and discharge reaction. So you've got those, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's where the, the, the flow word comes from. What that allows us to do is a number of different things. I mean, first of all, whenever you separate two elements from one another in a system like that, you gain the ability to discreetly manage those two elements, you know, more than you would otherwise. So, you know, for example, controlling the thermal, you know, the, the, the heat that's generated in a battery, we can do that very, very effectively because we're, you know, because we're separating where the power is generated from where the energy is stored. In terms of, uh, you know, the application fit, you know, one of the one of the benefits that that separation gives you is you can scale the energy storage and the power generation, you know, perfectly to whatever uh, a particular site needs or particular application needs. So, you know, you need double the energy storage, you double the size of your tanks. You're not doubling the overall size of the battery system, which is what you'd have to do if you were trying to execute that same step with, for example, a lithium array. When it comes to vanadium flow batteries in particular, you know, the advantage that we have is, uh, and this is, you know, getting that, you know, we're going to like, like flow battery nerd class, you know, 102, Completely. Um, <laughs> um, is, Bring you know, um, the positive in a vanadium flow battery that, well, in any battery, you've got a positive and, and a negative electrochemical couple that, that form that charge and discharge, that reaction, and you're passing electrons from one to the other. And that's fundamentally what the charge and discharge is. In a vanadium flow battery, the positive and negative couple are made of the identical material. They're both vanadium ions that, that, that form that positive and negative couple inside the battery. And what that means is that over time, as you, you charge and discharge the battery, the interactions between those positive and negative couples don't cause any sort of degradation. Right. If you think about the, the the charging and discharging of a conventional battery, you know you're plating a material onto a dissimilar electrode and then ripping it off again when you discharge, and vice versa. You know that process is always kind of ninety nine point nine nine percent complete, but after a thousand or two thousand charge and discharge cycles, that point zero zero one percent starts to catch up with you. We don't have any of that degradation mode inside the battery because of the identicality of that positive and negative couple. So what that means is that is that we have a battery that doesn't degrade as you charge and discharge it. You know, you can do tens of thousands of cycles with vanadium flow battery without, you know, the, the, the loss of capacity that, you know, everyone who owns a cell phone has experienced having with a, with a lithium ion cell where, you know, after after a thousand charge and discharge cycles, you've only got a fraction of what you started off with. Matt, I want to bring it back up a little bit to maybe 10 or 20,000 feet. Uh, that was an amazing explanation at a, at a chemical level of how the technology works. We'll probably get in a little bit more to the iterations uh, with your product in the marketplace and, and where different types of batteries fit in the overall spectrum of the energy transition. But you mentioned something that I'm intrigued by. Prudent, you know, you guys went to Beijing, sold this technology off. As an observer, my first question is kind of why isn't Prudent a $100 billion company and, and why are you now working for someone else? Sure. Yeah. So, look, I think the, the the challenge that we saw, you know, back in sort of 2012, 2013 um, was that, you know, Prudent was really focusing in on two things. They were focusing in on very, very large utility scale applications, uh, primarily in China. 
And they were focusing on delivering those projects in the same way that everyone up until then had delivered flow batteries, was, which was, you know, in the form of a, of a device that looked like a small chemical plant with, you know, huge, huge tanks and pipes and all this kind of stuff. What we saw at the time was an explosion in the amount of solar projects being, you know, installed, uh, you know, especially in the especially in the Western U.S. And, and and we were looking at, you know, what that would mean in terms of an opportunity for the technology. Because the problem that we saw is that is that you know the grid scale stuff wasn't gonna wasn't gonna scale as fast as we wanted. It wasn't gonna grow as fast as a company like ours needed. And you know there was so much innovative entrepreneurial work being done in the solar space that. We thought that that fundamentally was the model that we needed to attach ourselves to if we were going to grow the business. The parallel challenge on that with that commercial side was a was a was a was a technical one. Most flow batteries to date have been installed, you know, on the order of you know maybe a year to a year and a half to from from you know, shovel in the ground to commissioning. Solar projects, even back in 2013, when we were thinking through this, were being delivered in the scale of you know megawatts per week. We knew that we were not going to have a product that was fit for purpose for that market unless we thought about things differently. So, the the sort of the the fundamental innovative step that we went through with uh, with when we formed Avalon was to say, could we take this technology that we knew worked really well, that we knew had strengths that would be very much fit for purpose for the solar industry, and turn that into something that was a total turnkey product where we could be delivering it out of a factory, you know, delivering it to site, plug and play and having those things up and operating and serving the needs of, you know, solar customers, uh, you know, within hours. And that's, you know, that's that was something that we couldn't uh, that we couldn't do within the, you know, the existing organization. And that's what led us to believe that we needed to jump out, form Avalon and uh, and go it alone. You mentioned how, uh, you know, solar was scaling. A lot of folks have looked at storage as a natural complement to solar and and you had experience with with that element of the business but for those who maybe here are either unfamiliar with the business model generally or are more focused on solar as a business what makes the storage business different from solar and how did you conceptualize within avalon sort of baking that into your business case obviously i remember because I, I sort of know the history and path that you tied it closely to solar, but why was that decision made and how is the business different from solar? I think that the, 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 the way the business is fundamentally different is that with batteries, there's a decision point. Right? When you go and install a solar array in a field, uh, you, 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 you optimize it, you install it, you plug it in and it operates. You know, when the sun is out, it delivers power. With a battery, you need to be observing the conditions in within which that battery is installed and making a decision on a minute by minute or second by second basis about whether you should be absorbing energy, dispatching energy, or you know holding. And that 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 step of 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 having that intelligence built into the system that delivers value is a massive difference. Because what it means is that, you know, for example, some of the some of the business models that have led to, you know, huge inflection points in the solar industry are not are not uh, are not as applicable for storage. Right. You know, I mean, the standardization around PPAs and, and other similar contract structures have been hugely beneficial in the in, in the solar space, in my view. That standardized that standardized contracting isn't the same in storage because there always is this fundamental decision making step that has to happen in order to make those devices really deliver value. Hey, by now, I'm sure you've probably heard about our mission-minded program. 
getting your dream job in clean energy in 12 weeks. Our current cohort is giving us great feedback and kudos, I might add, as they go through the material and our coaching calls. You can see more about what this program looks like at suncast.vip. That's our brand spanking new webpage to talk about the mission-minded program. That's also where you can send friends, family, neighbors, colleagues that you know who might need a little extra help, a little guidance to find that dream job in clean energy. Our mission-minded program cohort is ongoing right now. We are taking a waiting list for our next cohort. I'd encourage you to do two things. One, send anyone you know that might be interested. Two, those of you who are so inclined, please go check out suncast.vip and email me, nico at mysuncast.com. Matt, I really appreciate you taking some time to help us think through like what the business models are. Uh, I feel like I could probably do an entire episode, I may, with you on exactly how we are going to harness the, you know, monetize the the coming uh, energy storage, as it were. But at the at the risk of maybe even a non sequitur, I want to kind of move on to a few other questions. I apologize for any listeners who are angry at me right now that I'm not giving all of the appropriate follow-ups I could, but I want to, we have a lot to cover, but thank you for that. I'm sure we'll actually circle back to around to some of those ideas uh, as we move forward. One of the core things that attracted me early on to better understanding chemistry and technology within the storage space is the, the various platforms that exist uh, uh, around storage. And one of the things I know that attracted, for example, Dan Sugar and Next Tracker to work with you guys back early days of Avalon to help validate your technology was the, the notion that you guys state in your vision statement that you want an industry to be economically and ecologically sustainable. Uh, how do you think about the negative externalities that exist within the industry of energy storage, in particular with you know rare earth metals and others? Uh, I've had conversations here on the platform about the difference between lithium ion and uh, you know, lithium iron phosphate and um, just to the sort of those iterations just within the lithium ion family. Flow batteries and vanadium is a completely different mixture as we've talked about. Can you talk a bit about those negative externalities and how at Avalon you look to harness that as a part of the, of the business proposition? I mean, first I'll, I'll talk, to, talk a little bit about sort of the product itself and then some of the underlying elements in it. I'm not going to throw too much mud on this. I mean, I think that there's, you know, the lithium, the lithium industry, you know, will solve the supply problems. You know, the, the, the old story about cobalt coming out of the Congo and whatnot, that's going to get resolved. Right? It's just a matter of time. There's so much effort being pushed in that direction that we'll see that happen. Um, for, you know, from our perspective, I mean, look, the, the fundamental starting point is that, you know, an asset that you can use over 30 years versus an asset that you can use over 10 is going to have, you know, a lower, a lower environmental footprint. If you look at the, you know, the, the, the levelized cost, if you will, the levelized cost of, of externalities, it's going to be better if you've got a more durable device. And that's, and that's where we sort of start off, you know, in terms of the, the fundamental materials themselves, um, you know, the, the vanadium electrolyte um, that we use in our battery is, is recyclable forever. I mean, the, the thing that's 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 that gives us the battery its durability is because that material doesn't change over time. So you know we've taken we've taken that material back from you know projects that have been in the field for a decade and and then put them out into new into new batteries, right? So it's it's it is a fundamentally totally circular, totally reusable material. 
once you take that vanadium electrolyte off to you know a new battery or back into the steel industry, whatever you want to do with it, what you're left with is a battery that you know literally 98% of it could be recycled in your curbside recycling bin. You know, it's polyethylene, polypropylene, steel, aluminum, copper. And so, you know, we can very easily decompose the battery into, um, you know, things that can be recycled using existing methods, existing techniques. The other question we get asked all the time is about, you know, what the heck is vanadium? And, you know, is it, you know, similarly either A, hard to get or B, coming from parts of the world where we don't want to buy it? Um, you know, and vanadium is, is not that at all. I mean, it's the 13th most common metal in the Earth's crust. It's, you know, it's under your feet. It's under my feet. Most of the world's vanadium is used in steel manufacturing. So the production of it today is primarily uh, primarily in countries that are doing a lot of steel production. But, you know, there are uh, producers in North America, in Europe, in Asia, you know, all over the place um, that can deliver this material. One of the things that I find most exciting is that one of the one of the one of the most abundant sources of vanadium is in a waste material uh, called uh, called fly ash, which is which comes out of you know heavy oil refining. There are you know millions of tons of vanadium rich fly ash lying around the world in places like you know the some of the oil oil fired power plants in around the Gulf Coast or you know the tar sands up in Alberta, and you know as we move to uh, you know, to be, you know, a much larger part of the global energy industry, I think what's going to happen is that we're going to start targeting those, you know, those, those, those waste streams as the primary source of input into our battery. So even before we build something that can store energy, we're already going to be having a positive environmental impact. There is a need for, I sense, a diversity of operation. We talk about the difference between lithium, vanadium, their use cases, etc. Some might look at and I think you hinted a bit at this, some might look at the solar industry and say, well, look, you know, kind of one technology, silicon has dominated the, the solar space. Won't that happen in storage as well with lithium? Most, you know, many folks have posited this. And uh, yeah, look, I think that it, it comes back to that, that applications point, right? I mean, you know, solar panels, there's not a solar panel in the world where you don't want it to make power when the sun is shining. Right. You know, that's that fundamentally the, the, the model for those devices is, you know, uh, make hay while the sun shines, as it were. And that is something that is totally different from what you see in the storage space. I mean, there are storage applications where you want to discharge, you know, a thousand times an hour. And there are storage applications where you want to discharge 10 times a year. What lithium has done is it has showed us that there is a phenomenal business case for storage in general on the electric grid. Right. And where and where and where lithium does a phenomenal job is is in doing things like peaker plant replacement, where you're looking to fill in, you know, 500 hours a year of the highest peak demand on the electric grid with a device. That's where lithium is. Uh, is it does a, a phenomenal job. But, you know, what we are laser focused on and kind of, the you know, the North Star for our business is, you know, what happens when you go to longer durations and higher cycles? You know, what happens when you're trying to take, you know, eight hours of good solar generation every day and turn it into 14 hours of baseload power that's going to get delivered overnight. You know, that's a that's a that's a battery that needs to do tens of thousands of cycles over its lifetime and it needs to deliver those cycles for, you know, 10 or 14 hours at a time. That's an application where uh, you know, lithium is less well suited and where we are bang in the middle of what we can do really really well. That makes a lot of sense to me and it's super helpful. I think that 
again, there's probably a masterclass on just how the, the, the energy grid evolution is going to heavily depend on energy storage, long and short duration, uh, power versus energy, which we have a whole separate uh, Tactical Tuesday on for those who want to look it up uh, that I did years ago with my buddy Mike when he was running uh, marketing for Vision. Uh, I think he did an excellent job actually explaining the difference between power energy and why that matters for flow batteries versus uh, versus devices like lithium batteries. You know, I mentioned a couple of times uh, that company. I think it's worth asking the question here, and I hate to press uh, one more time on why does Avalon uh, exist <laughs> and how is it, how has it survived? But I'm going to ask that question almost directly. The energy storage highway, as it were, the, the evolution of this industry has, uh, you know, is littered with bleached carcasses of companies that I've mentioned and, and others that have failed to provide the kind of customer acquisition uh, track record that you know, investors and the market look for uh, to validate a technology. Yet Avalon uh, continues to succeed. It is now part of, uh, you know, had the merger with Red T, which we'll talk about. And, and Infinity is, is the manifestation of that vision. But uh, what did you do differently? Why, does, why did you succeed where others have failed? I wish I could point to uh, to that one thing, and uh, you know, I'd write a, a great book about it, and you know, everyone would love to read it, and and, and it'd be wonderful. Uh, but I, you know, I can't. I, I try as I might, I haven't been able to point to one single point. Look, uh, you know, a couple a couple of the the critical success factors or the things that I would point to are, uh, you know, it's a it's a long long road, right? You look at the you look at the the technologies that are currently serving the electric grid, and they are not things that came to be overnight. You know, you're talking years, if not decades of development to get to get these devices to the point where they're commercially viable and, 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 and really, you know, making a material difference. In terms of, you know, what we did differently as, as compared with some of the other things that I've seen in the marketplace, um, you know, we from day one had a focus on uh, commercial viability, right? I think it's really easy, especially with the amount of, you know, grant funding and sort of other things like that in this space. It's really easy to go down a path of, you know, grabbing onto the dollars that will keep you alive and doing development to get the, to get to, to get yourself moved down the road. But the problem is if you don't have if you can't pivot from, you know, a, 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 a supported position to one where the technology can live on its merits and live on its commercial merits, you know, you can end up down a dead end. And, you know, what we did from day one is, you know, even though we, you know, we took advantage of, of and, and continue to take some of the take advantage of some of the phenomenal programs that groups like the CEC and, and DOD have funded or sorry, DOE have funded, you know, we always made sure that the next project would live on its own merits. And, and I think that, that sort of that, you know, maintaining that commercial focus is something that, uh, that has, that has borne out well for us. Cause it means it meant that we didn't make decisions that ultimately wouldn't have a place in the market. And, and, and that, uh, that I think has been really helpful. I had Josh Beck, friend of yours and mine on, uh, several times, most recently back in February, he and I talked about the importance of strategic partnerships I'm sure that's a conversation you've had with, with Josh a number of times on flights to China. But, uh, you know, BCI Ventures was an early investor in Avalon, um, notably also early investor in Next Tracker. Obvious the connection there for you guys in terms of early deal flow. Talk to me a bit about as a startup, as a product founder, uh, the importance of strategic partnerships in getting the venture beyond uh, the VC fund, the VC round, right? The getting it to commercial viability, like you just said, and how 
do you look at those strategic partnerships having been through them at VRB and Prudent and now Avalon uh, Infinity? Well, look, I, I, and I think that that's, that, you know, it's a perfect extension on, our, on the last question. Those commercial, those partnerships, um, you know, on the commercial side, on the manufacturing side, even on sort of the material supply side, you know, if you talk about the partnership that we have had with uh, with Bushveld Minerals um, in South Africa, one of the Vanadium, world's biggest Vanadium producers, you know, those partnerships are absolutely critical in our space, you know, because, uh, you know, the job is 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 too big to do on your own, right? You need other people who can step in and 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 not only provide you know, acceleration or, you know, add gravitas to your position. But, you know, for example, uh, you know, I think the number one criticism or the number one complaint or the number one rejection that we had when we were out pitching VCs was, we get it. You know, the technology looks good. We think that the market's going to be huge, but we just can't differentiate one battery from another. So we're going to stay on the sidelines. And partnering with a group like Next Tracker, who could say, look, we've got the technical chops. Our CEO is an engineer. We've got the technical chops to go in and tear this thing apart and figure out what really makes a difference and then partner with the right companies who can do so. That is, you know, that's a that's a big differentiator. And so to to give that, you know, because it, it lends so much credibility to to be able to say to, you know, the investment community, look, the 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 operations guys have looked at us. They know they can build a factory and they're going to put the money in, um, you know, to go to some of our existing customers and say, look, you know, one of the one of the biggest names in the, in the solar solar space is standing behind the things that we can do. That credibility is is an enormous part of uh, of building a business like ours. So Matt, I think I've got a pretty good understanding of the why and how Avalon came into existence. You just mentioned the partnership with BCI and Next Trekker. It seems to me like these early strategic partnerships helped to cement what we call product market fit. What comes next? between product market fit to you know commercializing a product identifying weaknesses in de- delivery fulfillment uh, all you know that that leads you to not just commercial success but now becoming a publicly traded company walk me through that process yeah well look i mean the in the starting point was the you know a lot of the a lot of the work that we did with you know the likes of bci right i mean understanding that there's a product market fit is great but if you can't you know deliver reliably and repeatedly and at a reasonable cost that people are willing to pay you're 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 still not down the right path. So, you know, back in kind of 2017, 2018, we spent a lot of time really sort of flushing our supply chain through, making sure that, you know, we could deliver these things, you know, that were then delivering devices that were reliable, that, you know, met the goals that various customers had, and that we could do that in a way, ultimately, that was that was going to be scalable into, you know, higher volume manufacturing. The fundamental point that we always had in the back of our minds, though, is that eventually this becomes a game around scale. We were approached in uh, in uh, early uh, 2019 by uh, a company called uh, Bushveld Minerals. I think I mentioned earlier, Bushveld is one of the biggest Canadian producers in the world. They're also the one that's taken um, the most aggressive stance towards you know evangelizing and trying to operationalize the vanadium flow battery side of the business as well. Um, you know, they approached us and said, look, you know, we like you guys. We'd like to invest in you. We'd like to become a strategic partner. We'd like to be part of your story. But as part of that, we think that there's an opportunity for you to, you know, massively accelerate your, your growth. Um, and, you know, after some, some no names conversations, they, they introduced us to uh, the team 
over in the UK that was that was running Red Tea um, at the time. You know, Red Tea was a very, in some ways, a very similar company to ours. You know, similar technology, both vanadium flow batteries, um, but they, they they had a different focus in terms of how they were building and delivering product. And what we saw is that there would be a great set of synergies between some of the commercial and call it sort of customer engineering side of their business with the fundamentals of the core product that we had in hand that would, you know, combine together and not only give us sort of a, a global reach in terms of the commercialization of the technology, but really a full suite of solutions in terms of everything needed to to have our customers make money. You know, that was uh, that would that would seem like a very, uh, a very compelling, uh, very compelling argument. Um, I think the other thing that we were seeing, and this is, you know, of course, through the benefit of hindsight is, you know, in the last year, it's you know, one of the things that's been really interesting in our industry is to see the degree to which public markets have started to pay a lot of attention to clean tech and green stories. That certainly wasn't the case two and a half years ago when we were first engaging in these discussions. And, and, and what we saw was sort of the first glimmers of that interest, um, which was, which was, which was fascinating. I remember coming back from one of my first, uh, first, uh, first meetings over, over in the UK. And, you know, there's a CEO group here in Vancouver that I, that I, that I engage with a lot. And, you know, I, 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 I was hinting at our plans and they sort of went, yeah, you like, you gotta be crazy. You don't want to be public markets. That's ridiculous. Well, you know, here we are two and a half years later, and, and that's where so much of our industry has gone. You know, so it was it was interesting to kind of like be right on the right on the on, on the on the, the, the precipice of that, you know, significant change in the industry. Well, begs the question, is it the right thing for a growing company to go public? We have so many from SPACs to outright public offerings, uh, different exchanges. Uh, is this the how do you know if this is the right thing for a growing company? I think a lot of founders in your shoes are making this decision right now. Yep. And and look and and I I, I think it, it it absolutely is and the reason for that is because you know this is the this is there is a well trodden path for development stage companies and early and, and and companies at the early stage of commercialization to fund themselves through through public markets right this is a this is an industry that individual investors want to be engaged in. Right. Um, this is an industry where, you know, you know, fun, you know, huge multi-billion dollar funds are, 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 are looking at putting a tremendous amount of money towards. And this is the established route by which people can 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 go and do that. You know, clean tech has always had a bit of a challenge at the, you know, the sort of later stage development, early stage commercialization world where um, there hasn't been a good development pathway. And, and I think that the, um, the 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 funding that you can pull in from the public markets are a, a, a good way to do that. That said, uh, I have had this conversation very recently with Anthony Catachanis of Victory Hill. And so I'm curious to hear your take on it as well. They also went public on the London Stock Exchange. Why London? Frankly, it's because, I mean, just pure tactics. That's where the, the company we merged with was already listed. Now, it turns out that a, you know, this was a, a deemed under the, the AIM rules to be a reverse takeover and a reverse takeover, have, takeover has all of the same hoops as an IPO. So we kind of might as well have done it anywhere. Um, but, you know, th there was the history and, and, and that, was a, that was a reasonable starting point. Certainly looking back two years, the appetite for uh, ESG centered and green uh, technologies and stocks was, was a lot riper in London than it is. Is over here in North America, um, you know, clearly we've seen that change in the last, you know, 12 to 18 months, um, but uh, and change for the better, in my view. But, um, you know, that's that's what sort of had us originally pointed in that direction. With regard to merging 
with another company. You've done it before. Obviously, you took your idea from BRB, you went into Prudent. Uh, I don't imagine this was similar. They're a decade apart in um, in the transaction cycle. Uh, how do you as a founder think about uh, merging with another company? What was hard? What was easy? Who helped? Who got in your way? What'd you do right? <laughs> what would you do differently? Yeah. <laughs> we closed our deal in London, closed the merger deal in London and announced it to the public on March 13th of last year. And, you know, that was the, yeah, 2020. That's right. Yeah. Uh, You know, that was the week that the, all the circuit breakers on the exchanges were tripping. That was the week where, you know, the, the, the stock markets had lost 30% of their valuation and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It was a really bizarre world to try and get that deal done in. Um, And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm incredibly thankful for some of the advisors we had on hand for, for, and, and, and for, you know, for our ability to just push through and get it done. You know, what that meant is that, you know, we, my, you know, Larry and Larry Zalch, our, our CEO, and I flew home, uh, you know, on the 14th of March and went into lockdown and have literally been integrating with our team, talking with our, talking with our, the other executives in the company and, and making this merger happen, you know, over Zoom for the last 16 months. So it's been a, it's been an unusual time to do that kind of work. And, uh, you know, I think that, uh, I think that, you know, I don't know if any of the lessons that I've learned would be applicable to someone trying to do the same thing. Now, what I will say is that it's been a phenomenal time to do a transatlantic merger, right? Because, you know, the guys who are, you know, down the road from me are no further away than the guys in Scotland. And, you know, we've, you know, we, we've adjusted our working hours a little bit and we have gotten very used to, you know, being on, on video platforms all the time, like everyone else has, but it's, you know, in terms of integrating the two companies together, it's been, it's, it's been really good. It's, it's actually one of the things that we're most concerned about is that now, as we're looking forward to going back to the office, I mean, how is that going to change? Uh, how's that going to change the culture, right? How is it, what is it going to mean when all of a sudden, you know, 40% of the people in the company are, you know, are closer to you because you are actually in the same building as them as compared with this even playing field that we've had up until now. That's a, I mean, that's a huge cultural change and not one that, you know, the rest of the rest of society is going to be going through all at the same time, like was the case a year ago when we were all adapting to, to sort of the virtual environment. Is there anything about being in the office that will help you uh, more effectively operationalize the ideas that have come out of the last year of being, you know, being merged with Red Tea and going public. Yeah, and look, absolutely. I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a huge believer in uh, in the power of in person interaction and just the 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 richness of the experience that you get. Um, you know, uh, you know, talking with people in real time and uh, and uh, and whatnot. One of the essays about sort of how work works and how people work that I sort of come back to over the years was written by a guy named Alan Shepard, who talked about talked about sort of three three pillars of how we engage with the world. And he talks about autonomy, resonance and tone. And it's that it's that, you know, in terms of our interactions with other people and it's that resonance point that is so critical with those in-person interactions. I mean, as much as you and I are having a great conversation now, seeing people in the flesh and exchanging and challenging and pushing their ideas in person, um, I think is just such a huge part of, of, of what, us, what makes me make better, smarter decisions. And I'm, I'm very much looking, back, looking forward to getting back to, back to that world. I love how thoughtful uh, you are and your answers are. And I've been following the work that you guys have been doing for a decade 
as a leader of teams, you often have to think about how to be inspiring. And a question I have, I sometimes ask that I want to kind of drop over to you. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it is, uh, if you were invited to give a TED talk from any stage, maybe TEDx London, maybe it's an actual TED main stage, what would that talk be about? I would talk about why storage matters. You know, I'd go back to kind of the, the basic fundamentals of why what I'm doing, what Infinity is doing, and what some of the other people in our, doing, in our industry make a, make a difference. You know, I think that um, it's easy in uh, an industry like ours to forget why the industry existed in the first place. And, you know, going back to this notion of we live in a world where um, we've become very capable of controlling uh, the resources available to us. And the ability to use electricity uh, on demand is one of those things that we've not yet mastered. The ability to take that, you know, all of that renewable energy that is generated at low cost and use it to replace sources of energy that we that we gain by flipping a switch and burning fuel is a, a, a huge and fundamental step that I don't think is 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 really appreciated in sort of the 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 the, the change that it really implies. What I would say in a TED talk is the inflection point that we're trying to go through from something that we, a source of energy that we do control to a source of energy that we don't control implies opportunities and challenges that, that we're only at the beginning of, of, of understanding. But, you know, again, to sort of, you know, go back to that kind of that, that, that North star um, for our business and for my work is, you know, looking at how do you make that energy hundred percent available on demand, hundred percent dispatchable available when you need it and do that with the, you know, the incredible, the low cost and the reliability that we've come to enjoy over the last hundred years of this very mature, very well evolved, um, you know, grid system, which is look, it's, it's the biggest, it's the biggest machine humanity has ever made is the electric grid. You know, we're upending that machine. How do we make sure it's still going to do what we want? Matt, I'd love to, you know, you've interacted with some of the folks that I consider to be icons in our industry. Uh, I imagine you've interacted with even many more that I've never got a chance to meet yet. With regards to solar or perhaps the broader renewable energy, when you think of success story, who comes to mind? Um, so look, so I'm I, I'm not a believer in kind of the, the 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 great man theory of you know how industrial stuff gets driven forward. I mean, it is impossible to deny you know Steve Jobs and Elon Musk their successes, um, but but I think that those are the exceptions rather than the rule. Um, I mean, when I think about the people who I have been most energized by engaging with. It's 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 some of the great teams out there. Uh, you know, I walk into I've walked into meetings with team with guys like, you know, Generate Capital or you know the team out in New York with uh, with De Shaw, and and just realize that I'm around a bunch of people who you know whose IQ are you know ten points north of mine and and are having more fun doing their jobs than I am. So it's just been you know great to you know, to engage with teams like that, and I think that's played out in in the industry as well. I mean, you look at. Um, you know the, the the core teams from companies like Sun Edison and, and SunPower and and where they have ended up, the companies that they've gone on to form, the teams that they've worked with and that they've pulled through to, you know, new and future projects and the successes that they've had subsequent to those engagements. You know, I think it really is. You know, this is a this you know renewables is a team sport, and uh, and and I think that that would be the you know what I view as kind of the the, the critical aspect of moving some of these some of these companies and some of these initiatives forward. What are some of the key 
lessons or takeaways from important mentors or folks that have had influence, key influence in your life or career? I think, let me mention three. Um, uh, you know, the first one was um, I had a, a, my, the guy who was my uh, manager at back at VR, in VRB Power and, and Prudent Energy Days. Um, I remember having a, a conversation with him when I was sort of thinking about what I was, what my career path would be. And he said, look, it's really simple. Do the thing that you are better than anyone else at doing. You're going to have more fun doing it. You're going to be better at it and you're going to go further doing it. I think I mentioned, uh, you know, the other one was, um, again, around that same time, you know, one of my mentors said to me, and I, again, this is when I was thinking about, should I, should I be going back to school? And I was like, ah, but what am I going to do there? You know, just, and the point he made was, you know, you don't, it's not about, uh, it's not about understanding, you know, what you're trying to learn. It's about understanding what, what paths might be open. And, and that was, you know, really, really important to me and really sort of informed my thinking. Um, and the final one was, uh, you know, um, in the uh, just before we formed uh, Avalon or uh, around the time we were forming Avalon, I, I spent a year working for a, an electrochemical wastewater treatment company here in Vancouver for a guy named Jonathan Roan, who uh, um, who always uh, always pushed me to understand that, uh, you know, you're, you're building a business and building a business means building commercial opportunities. And that means that everything you do has to have a commercial focus, even if it's not perfect, even if the projects are supported by money that comes from somewhere that doesn't flow from a cash flow, you know, having that commercial focus fundamentally underpins the scalability of any business. And, uh, and that, that, that commercial focus will carry you a long way. Yeah. That brings us full circle to the comments you made earlier about, um, being able to find that commercial focus and always uh, not settling, uh, not, not feeling justified, like, okay, we got this government funding. Um, that's good enough. Uh, I have to imagine that there were some darker moments in the growth of the company. I mean, certainly it, as just as an industry participant, there were times where I was like, oh, I wonder if Avalon will ever make it uh, to the, to the, anything that looks like a finish line with that in mind, how do you as a leader think about, and certainly from a product perspective where there are constantly ideas thrown at you internally and externally about what you can, could, or should, would, would do. How do you determine when to stop digging, uh, how and why to keep digging? How do you manage that from a team engagement perspective, uh, project management perspective? Look, I think, I think it comes back to the, the, the point that you just made that team engagement, you know, I worked for a short time for a, a company in my, in my history, I'll be a little bit vague. Um, but, uh, you know, it was a company where, uh, it was, it was a startup where, um, the founder, I think, found, you know, uh, found the company in, in some, some difficult times, really tried to internalize that struggle, really, you know, tried to sort of go inside himself and fix the problems. And it uh, failed catastrophically, right? Um, you, you know, he, he ended up with a, a, a failed company and a pile of lawsuits on his lap, which was not the outcome any of us wanted. To my comments around sort of, you know, in this industry, it's teams that drive things forward. You know, in, in dark times, you know, we, I've been able to sort of go back to, to my team and say, look, you know, we're in a tough spot, um, you know, but, you know, here's what I know. Here's what I don't know. Here's what we're doing. Here's what we're not going to be able to do. And, uh, and, and that sort of, you know, openness and, 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 and complete transparency, especially when things aren't going well. I think has been critical to, 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 to keeping my team together over the last you know, seven years. And there have been rough batches, but, you know, we've maintained a high level of, a level of cohesion and, and have made it, uh, made it through the storm. You know, all the headlines talk about a ton of money flowing into the industry. 
Uh, and I think as, uh, as we've discussed some of the infrastructure challenges we've overcome, some of the financial challenges we've overcome, how do you, as a leader of a company that is opening new markets, think about addressing the human capital issue, attracting the right talent and really filling that huge talent gap that we have right now, you know, creating the buoyancy we need, uh, you know, we need hands on the oars. For sure. And look, it's, 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 it's an area that I'm, I'm starting to see a lot more, uh, you know, a lot more progress. Um, you know, people from very different industries are starting to wake up and pay attention to the opportunity in front of us and to the, the opportunity to make real change. Um, you know, when I see guys like Mark Carney, the former chairman of the Bank of England, you know, joining, uh, you know, becoming head of ESG for a $600 billion investment fund that is, you know, driving green and clean initiatives. I mean, that's a huge change. You know, I think as an industry, you know, we need to be a little bit less us versus them and a little bit more big tent, right? Um, you know, some of the some of the advocacy work that um, I've seen over the last five or 10 years is very focused on advancing a, a single point of view. And if we're going to become the dominant force in the industry, we have to broaden that focus um, and, and think about, you know, not just how do we make more batteries? How do we install more solar? So how do we make the industry in general, you know, a lot more, a lot more profitable, a lot more sustainable and a lot more uh, have, a, have a much bigger impact? Yeah, I want to ask a, a kind of a quick question. Coming full circle back to the very beginning, Ballard Power, you got started in the fuel cell industry. Hydrogen Power was, uh, you know, shouted from the mountaintops in 06, 08 from, you know, Governor Schwarzenegger himself. And it's seeing a bit of a revival. Ostensibly, in, in some ways, hydrogen, green hydrogen uh, stands to compete with uh, the industry that we've tried to stand up with, uh, with viable energy storage solutions like Infinity Solution. What are your thoughts on the current green hydrogen buzz and boom? And, and where does it sit in the overall ecosystem with energy storage as we've discussed it today? It's all part of that same landscape, right? You know, like just in the same way that I, I talked about sort of the differentiation and the parallel opportunities for both flow and lithium, hydrogen is exactly the same, right? I mean, I... My, my personal opinion is that, you know, personal automobiles, you know, lithium ion is one a day and, you know, there's not going to be any other, you know, any other fuel source for those vehicles, you know, five years from now for heavy duty vehicle fleets, you know, especially where those fleets are, are in a, a limited geographic area, you know, hydrogen has some tremendous advantages. And so, look, I think it's going to be, it's, you know, it's going to be the bifurcation of, of, of where in specific markets, those individual technologies are best suited. Are there any particular resources that you have found very helpful, maybe that you refer your team to that others coming along the journey would be able to, you'd be able to refer them to in particular around energy storage, kind of trends and things, websites that you commonly go to? I mean, I look, I'm a big scanner. I, I, I look at, you know, everything that comes through on, you know, a lot of the sort of the, the, the main industry publications and, and, and try and tease out the things that are showing sort of unique, unique and interesting thought, um, you know, because what are publications that you follow then. Uh, yeah, you know, the, uh, things like, uh, you know, some of the some of the solar media uh, magazines and publications, some of the some of the renewables industry magazines and publications, same kind of thing. 
Are there any particular books that have made a big impact on you? I'm a reader. I think a lot of our, I know a lot of our listeners are readers as well. I'd love to hear if there's anything you might recommend. Yeah. I mean, I I would go two directions with that. You know, in terms of my, I tend to read books for breadth, not for depth. I mean, when I'm looking for depth in, in, in my industry and in my area of practice, I look more to, you know, journals and articles and all that sort of thing. You know, I, I talked earlier about, you know, the degree to which sort of the design process is something that has really sort of informed my thinking and and, and going back to, you know, some of the, the, the key books on that. I've read pretty much everything Don Norman has ever written, you know, starting from the design of everyday things was a book he published in the mid 90s that, you know, has has long since been dog eared and tagged and scribbled on in, in my uh, my bookshelf. Um, you know, more recently, there was a great book written by a guy named uh, um, Frank Chimero called uh, The Shape of Design, uh, which, you know, is, is, you know, I think for a, for a lot of people, design is, is very nebulous. And it's a, that, that was a, what he put, he put form to what can be seen as a very nebulous process, which I thought was, uh, which was fascinating. Uh, you know, otherwise, I mean, I, you know, along the lines of, you know, what I said about, you know, the things that drive me, you know, doing, uh, doing hard things with great people, you know, all of those, 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 you know, those, those stories of intense collaboration, I find fascinating things like, you know, um, the right stuff, you know, the, the story of the early space program. That's amazing. Um, there's a wonderful book written by a guy named, uh, Peter Hopkirk called the great game, which talked about sort of the, um, you know, the, the trials and tribulations of some the, the, the sort of the great forces of the 1700s, 1800s, and early 1900s struggling for power in Central Asia. I mean, and the, the stories of the, the humans who went and did those great campaigns, you know, trying to you know, push forward. I think, you know, things that, you know, from a 2020 lens are perhaps, uh, you know, not as, uh, you know, not as um, we view a lot less on sort of those imperial campaigns now that we might have sort of 100 years ago. But, you know, the individual stories of, you know, people who came together to do great and and adventurous things I find uh, super compelling. I'm sure folks are going to want to reach out to you. Where do you like to be found? Given that it's, you know, coronavirus, I, 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 on my front front lawn with a six pack of beer, frankly, because <laughs> it's the only <laughs> chance I ever get to, you know, uh, uh, interact. interact. With, yeah, exactly. Um, that's, look, easiest way to get in touch with me is is, is probably LinkedIn, um, you know, or, or I mean, my, you know, that's that I am on there pretty frequently. I'm not a huge Twitter user. Um, but, uh, it is what it is. We'll link to that. Do you have the, does, uh, does Invinity or is there a blog or anything like that that you all regularly update that you direct people to? Uh, yep. Yeah. I mean, our, our website, infinity.com that's infinity with a V for vanadium, um, is, uh, is where we keep all that stuff. Um, you know, there's, uh, there's blog posts up there. Um, there's all of our newsfeed, including links to, you know, a lot of the stuff that myself and, and, and some of my team are, 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 and are putting out, uh, putting out in the world. So that's a, that's a good starting point for understanding more about who we are and what we do. Let's end today with, a bold prediction as we always do. Matt, what one thing are you watching in the market that maybe nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball? My prediction is that, uh, you know, the, that this whole decarbonization and race to net zero is going to happen way faster than any of, any of us have predicted. You know, I think that the, the targets that we thought would be achievable by 2050, we're going to see starting to pick those off, you know, around 2030. That's not a bold prediction. I think a lot of people are saying that. My bold prediction is that when we get to 2030 and have tread that path, what we're going to realize is that everything we needed was already on the table in 2021. I love that. That is so well put. Well, with that, Matt, thank you so much for joining us here on Suncast. It's such a pleasure to see you, my friend. Thank you, Nico. Great to to chat with you. 
All right, Solar Warriors. I hope that you're as inspired and uh, saturated as I am with the goodness of being able to learn from a fellow entrepreneur, uh, someone who as well was an intrapreneur and spent more than two decades helping bring to fruition products that are going to impact our daily lives moving forward. If you would like to learn more than you, my fellow Philomath, can find all the resources we've discussed here, the highlights and book recommendations along with the social media, the link to Infinity's website, and so much more over on our blog at mysuncast.com. Just click on the show notes and you'll find this episode. Since I know you're already jumping online, I'd love it if you would take a moment, go to LinkedIn as Matt just encouraged you and find him, connect with him, but also find the note that we've published on this episode and share it with a friend. That would mean the world to me and a real treat, I'm sure, for Matt and his team to see that you care enough to tell the world that you thought this was a great episode. I would also encourage you, lastly, to come back again, uh, check the Suncast feed next week as we always drop another episode on Tuesdays that's practical and tactical in nature and another thought long form episode like this one on Thursdays for you to learn more about how to build your own career as an entrepreneur, entrepreneur, thinker, thought leader, creator, co-founder in the clean energy revolution. Thanks again for listening to Suncast. Thanks once again to our sponsors for helping make it free and possible for you. You can learn more about that at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle. <laughs>